Well, guys, thanks so much for coming out for uh, our Sunday nights, our new series, What Happened on the Cross. First shun, introduction. Uh, so that's quite fitting. Uh, the reason why we wanted to do this series was so that we would have a chance as we head into Easter to review the great doctrines of our salvation. Um, and I wanted us to... I've been wanting for about two years to do a series like this. I thought of doing it on a Sunday morning. And then I thought, why don't we just do it in a nighttime series, a special kind of Lenten series as we head in um, into Easter. So you'll see on your outline there that on the back of it, there's an overview of what we're doing. So tonight we're going to be looking at one major term, substitution. Uh, but there's going to be some other terms, salvation, propitiation, expiation, purification. Next week we're going to look at redemption justification and reconciliation. Then the week after that, we're going to take it off because we've got G2G, and I just thought it might be pushing it to try and do both on the same night. And then the last one is technically not a shun. Um, it's unification, which is actually the doctrine of union with Christ. Um, but the reason I want us to do unification or union is that it, it, it's sort of like the, the way of summarizing everything that Christ did for us, what that means for us subjectively. So there's objective, what happened on the cross, which is what we're doing. And then the last one is, how does that apply to us personally and subjectively? Um, and so Joel's going to be teaching on that one, which is going to be great. Appreciate that, Joel. Uh, you'll notice on the back as well, I've, I've got some resources. Um, and so there's a number of books which are really significant. I want to draw your attention to as we begin. Uh, so I've got a bunch of them here. This one's called The Cross of Christ by John Stott. Um, it's not like a devotional book. It's not like reading CJ's Living the Cross-Centered Life. It it's, deals with what happened on the cross in its breadth and depth, in its intellectual history and church history. So highly recommend that one, but it's not an easy read, but it's a very good one. This book is a very important book called Pierce for Our Transgressions, and it argues convincingly and compellingly for penal substitutionary atonement, which by the end of tonight, you'll know what that means. This book, In My Place Condemned, He Stood by Packer and Dever, is five essays or something um, on the gospel and on the topics that we're talking about tonight. So this one's a great one. And worth the price of the book is the essay by J.I. Packer, which is actually his foreword to... John Owen's The Death of Death and The Death of Christ, and that one is just an incredible, life-changing essay. J.R. Packer's Knowing God is a classic book, and there's a great chapter in there called The Heart of the Gospel, and many other elements that make up how we understand the cross are in here. And then there's a book by John Murray called Redemption, Accomplished and Applied. Um, so the accomplished part is the objective work of Christ on the cross, and the applied is the subjective work. So election, conversion, regeneration, etc., uh, etc., et union with Christ included. And then this is Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, and this is just A to Z of theology, and there's a number of chapters here on the doctrine of atonement. So I just thought I'd do a bit of show and tell. All right, friends, the plan for tonight is more, more of a lecture style than a sermon style. Um, there's a lot of Bible reading so if you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to maybe go and get one. Um, I do want us to be in the text or use your phone, whatever you want. I'm mainly going to be arguing from the Scriptures to try and build a case for 
basically the most fundamental way to understand what happened on the cross. It's debated in history and academia and in churches and in society and culture from the highly intellectual to the just the moral or the, the instinctive reaction that people have. Um, but we're going to be looking at um, what I think is the best way of understanding what actually happened on the cross. So let me pray. Uh, Lord God, I thank you that we get to gather tonight. I thank you that we have your word. Um, ultimately, that's all we need. And, and so we stand under the authority of your scripture and ask that you would guide us, you would lead us, uh, you would correct if there's anything wrong in any of our theologies. Would you take us deeper into the glories and the mystery of the atonement? And would we come away not just to having our minds stretched, but our hearts swollen? Uh, and may it impact the rest of our week. We do want to thank you again for meeting with us powerfully this morning. Um, it was such a joy, O oh Lord, and I pray now that you would meet with us again. Um, would you move in us in power? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, well, let's have a look at, after the introduction, <laughs> number two, salvation. So the whole doctrine of what happened on the cross really comes under the theological word soteriology. Um, soter is the Greek word for savior or salvation. So the study of salvation is soteriology. And the other biblical word that describes our salvation is that word that's put on your outline there, um, atonement. Atonement is a word you'll see all the way through, particularly the Old Testament. Um, it was a word created in the Reformation when they were translating into English, how do you get a word which makes sense of all that happens in the sacrificial system between God and man? Uh, and I believe it was Tyndale who came up with this word atonement, uh, i.e. at-one-ment, the, the restoration of right relationship between God and man through a sacrificial death. Um, and so what happened on the cross is the atonement or an atonement, uh, the atonement of all atonements. So when we talk about salvation, when we talk about the gospel, when we talk about redemption, um, all these words are words which mean atonement. How can man be brought into right relationship with God? Which means to understand the cross means we have to not just understand what happened on a hill called Calvary, but understand about who God is, understand about what man is and what we've done and what we've done wrong. Um, it brings together all of our theology. And in fact, the, the gospel sits here, but it sits on these pillars of all of our theologies. So if you get your doctrine of God wrong, you'll get the gospel wrong. If you get your doctrine of man wrong, you'll get the gospel wrong. Um, if you get the, you know, the doctrine of family or gender, all these things, eventually, some way, they'll affect the gospel. Uh, and so it's imperative that we have a broad perspective when we look at it from the beginning of the Bible to the end. The climax in Christian theology, though, is that sentence at the top of your page, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, that's the great hope of the Scriptures, the great thing at which God was working out throughout Old and into the New Testament. So the first shun is salvation. Um, it's often called the atonement in the Old Testament. And the reason why I wanted to use that word atonement is because it's going to lead into the next point there, substitution. 
Uh, that's the big S, or the big shun, I should say, that we're going to do tonight, substitution. And specifically, a doctrine that is very precious to the Reformed world, to our world, um, which is much hated and aligned by people outside of our camp, is penal substitutionary atonement. And put your hand up if you've heard that term before. Okay. Um, yeah, so sometimes just called PSA. Um, it really is, I believe, the heart of the gospel to understanding the whole gospel. And so we're going to look at how do we arrive at a, a doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement um, tonight and, and how do we put that together from the Bible. So firstly, the necessity of atonement. The necessity of atonement. The atonement or God restoring right relationship with us is not something that we should take for granted. Uh, there's no divine law which says gods must appease uh, their own wrath against their people and provide their own sacrifice and substitute themselves in their place. Uh, there's no divine law which says God has to save anyone. He could have been just in leaving all of us to perish. So to understand uh, the necessity of the atonement, we need to look at our sin, God's holiness, God's wrath, and God's mercy. So let's have a look at some of those verses there. Romans 3.23 talks us about our human condition. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. By the way, I don't have any slides, so you're going to have to do the work yourself. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So all humanity has sinned. Whoever believes in the Son, John 3.36, has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So by default, we're sinners and God's wrath is upon us. Ephesians 2.3 says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying, in the, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of man. Now, I forgot actually to put a verse in there about God's holiness. I skipped that, but let's add it in. So you've got, we're all sinners. God hates sin, that's his wrath, and he hates sin because he's holy. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Uh, there is no one like him. He is without any even hint or temptation of sin. There, there is excellence in all of his attributes and beauty in all of his being and therefore sin is such a marring of his created goodness that he is actively opposed to our sin and personally opposed to it god doesn't just see it as like well that's an incorrect answer and a multiple choice it's a personal affront to him god hates sin and so there's a problem hebrews 9 22 says Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So there's our sin, we all have it. God's holy, therefore he's wrathful against our sin. And unless there's some way of getting rid of this sin, there's no forgiveness of sins. And the result, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So anyone who sins is justly under the wrath of God. But then we've got this concept too, that God is merciful. So how does that play in? 
Exodus 34, 6, the Lord passed before him, that is Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And I think for a lot of people, especially if you don't read your Bible and you're not full of it, it can seem so confusing. Why is God so angry but so merciful? <laughs> Why does he have such high standards if he wants to love the world? And that leads us to the second dot point there, God's love and God's justice. The reason why there must be atonement is because God is simultaneously loving and just. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Divine love meant that he had to send his son. But divine justice meant that he had to send his son. He couldn't just forgive our sin. He couldn't, in his holiness and justice and righteousness, just say, well, that's fine. It, it, it's okay. Um, you, you meant well. You didn't quite do it, so I'll let you off this time. Uh, that's where Islam leaves you. In Islam, there's forgiveness with no justice. Because in the end, Allah just says, you're forgiven, I'm merciful. And some people look at that and think, well, that's even more noble. I'm like, isn't it ignoble for a God to have to sacrifice? Like, why does he have to kill? Why all the blood? Why all the anger? Why all the wrath? Well, it's tied up in his nature and character because of what we've seen, that he's holy any wrathful, they come together. Without wrath, there's no true love um, because you protect that which you love. Um, you, if you allowed your wife or your husband to just be abused or taken advantage of or, or a child or, or your parents, just, oh, whatever, do what you will with them, that's fine, I'll leave them to you. That would just indicate that you actually don't love them. And so God demonstrates his love by demonstrating his justice, by requiring holiness and requiring sacrifice. But this creates a problem. If you think ever since Noah, there hasn't really been a time when the whole world was held accountable for their sin. Genesis 6, okay. But since Genesis 6, people have been getting away with it. People just almost getting away scot-free. And that's why the, the atonement is so necessary. Because it not only does it justify us before God, it justifies God to the world. It demonstrates God's justice, that he actually does have a standard and will uphold it. And that's Paul's very argument in Romans chapter 3, which we'll look at a bit later, but let's have a look at it now. Romans 3, 25 to 26 Jesus Christ, our redemption, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. What's the point of this? Well, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he'd passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The cross, as we're going to see, will justify God and demonstrate that he is both loving and holy. 
Uh, he is merciful and just without removing either one of those. So that's the necessity of the atonement. God didn't have to do it, but he chose to do it. Because of his love, he promised to save, and therefore he had to send a sacrifice. And that leads us into number two, the nature, or point, whatever it is there, the nature of the atonement. And this leads us to that big word, penal substitutionary atonement. What type of atonement actually took place on the cross? If you flip over and open up your little thing, we're in the second page here. I've got listed there alternative theories of the atonement. Um, there's lots of conjecture about really what happened on the cross. There's, and we might, if we get time, we might look at these later, but there's the ransom to Satan theory of atonement. There's the moral influence theory of the atonement, or Socinianism. There's the example theory of the atonement. And then there's the non-violent theory of the atonement, which is gaining popularity um, more and more as we live in, I don't know what you would describe these times that we're in, but somehow the cross becomes non-violent. I don't know how, but somehow. Uh, in fact, my little brother would just text me recently and said, what do you know about non-violent atonement? And I was like, well, <laughs> I know it's wrong. <laughs> um, because he knows someone who genuinely believes it. Uh, and there's, there's so much out there. I mean, as I was studying for adoption the other day for the, church, the sermon two weeks ago, I, was, I found a book that was saying, like, we should not teach adoption because the family unit is so broken. If you talk about the family unit and dysfunction, you're going to bring up all people's traumas. So we have to get rid of that from the Bible. Um, and that was like a PhD you know, person wrote a book on that. And you think, wow, if we just get rid of anything that could possibly ever offend, we're in deep trouble. Um, so we need to have a good theory of what happened. And we use that word theory in a sense of, the Bible never uses these words, penal substitution. So what we're trying to do is, we're trying to put together all the scriptures and paint a picture of what happened on the cross. We're trying to get images. Uh, we're trying to use words that can put in a succinct, systematic way, because this is what we're doing, is systematic theology, what took place. And I think penal substitution is the best two-word summary of what actually took place on the cross. So what type of atonement took place on the cross? Well, firstly, a penal atonement. Uh, and none of this will be probably new to you, but it's just so good to look at it in all of its context. So Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4 to 6. Let's have a look at that. And there will be time for questions at the end, by the way. So if you've got questions, let's go for it at the end. Okay. Now, this has both penal and substitution in there, but anyway. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins. You see that in all those verses there, that there's, a, there's an offense against God, and then there's this servant that's put forward, and they pay the penalty for the offense. Our transgressions, that word means to break a known boundary. So you, you know, trespass on someone's property, well, you've transgressed, and you've broken a law, you pay the penalty, and so Christ paid the penalty upon the cross for our sin. That's what Isaiah was predicting. Uh, this, in fact, is the, the central text in the New Testament that is used to describe what happened on the cross. If you read, um, you'll see it in 1 Peter, we've seen it multiple times, in Mark's Gospel, uh, there, there's, there's at least eight references to it out of the 12 verses in Isaiah 53. And then if you just take particular words, you'll see it littered throughout the whole New Testament. So Isaiah 53, when the New Testament writers by the Holy Spirit thought of, how do we explain what took place on the cross? Isaiah 53 was their go-to text. Um, the suffering servant. Perhaps because Jesus said, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, the, the ransom saying is Jesus saying he gave himself away to, to buy us back. And you see in that saying when Jesus said that, the son of man, so that's the Daniel figure, Daniel 7, the, this God man, divine figure, did not come to be served but to serve. And that brings in the Isaiah 51 to 65, that the, the so-called, oh, sorry, Isaiah 42 to 55, the servant songs. And so it, Jesus pulls them both together and we go, oh, he knew what he was doing. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, which we looked at multiple times today. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. So there's a penalty being paid by Christ on the cross. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. So there's the penalty. Jesus Christ paid the penalty of our sin. And there's a substitution by dying in our place on the cross. John 1, 29 is a famous one. Let's have a look at that one. Probably would have just helped if I printed off all the verses for you. But anyway, you have to do the work. So John the Baptist appears and he's baptizing and then he sees Jesus. And then verse 29, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said... Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, when John uses that phrase, he's picking up on a particular event in the Old Testament. Not just the sacrificial system, but most likely the Passover itself. You see in your notes there, I've listed Exodus 12. Um, and so when Jesus uh, is described as the Lamb of God... He's, he's talking about the substitutionary lamb that each Israelite family sacrificed and painted its blood on the doorposts of their house so that as the angel of death goes throughout Egypt, when it sees the, the lamb that substitutes that sinful family, 
it passes over and wrath doesn't come to the house. If any Israelite did not paint the blood of the lamb on their door and did not sacrifice the lamb, they would not have been saved. They would have had a death. By vert, just because they were in the covenant and followers of Abraham wouldn't have saved them. They needed a substitution. They needed something or someone to die in their place and for their sins. And the whole sacrificial system is built around this idea. The, the sacrificial system is the shadow in the Old Testament of what becomes the reality in Christ in the New Testament. Hebrews is very good at explaining that. But if you look at Leviticus 16, you don't have to do it now, you'll notice that there's another image of substitution which would have been really key in the Israelites' mind, and that was the Day of Atonement. One day in the year, the high priest would put on the full garb, do the full ritual, um, and they would make sacrifices for the sins of the entire nation. And they didn't sacrifice one per animal per person on this day. They would uh, make a few sacrifices, but then there was a particular sacrifice. There was two goats. One goat was sacrificed and its blood was on the altar. And that, that sin, or that sacrifice, the blood was shed. Like instead of Israelites dying, the goat dies. But then there's a second goat. And the priest would lay his hands on that goat. And actually, if you turn to, what is it, Leviticus 16, verse 21, I think it is, you'll see what the, the priest had to say. Yeah, verse 21. And Aaron shall lay both hands on the head of the live goat, and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. So not only do we have a sacrificial blood side of things, but there's also a substitution desolation side of things where the, the sins of the people are placed symbolically on a goat and the goat is sent out of the camp into abandonment, into forsakenness, into desolation. What did Christ cry out on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was his desolation. It was his desertion from the Father like this goat was sent out into the wilderness, bearing the sin of the people. So substitution is so key to the Old Testament sacrificial system. But as we read in Hebrews 9.22, there's no forgiveness of sins without shedding of blood. But also we read in Hebrews, the shedding of blood of goats and animals could never forgive our sins anyway. So we have this Old Testament problem. Furthermore, um, Isaiah 53.12 shows us again another substitution uh, and just showing how Jesus is prefigured there. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So again, substitution is taking place. Someone is bearing sin. And then Paul pulls it all together in 2 Corinthians 5.21. And this is just a remarkable statement, isn't it? For our sake, he, that is God, made him, that is Christ, to be sin who knew no sin. 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So for our sake, he that is God made Christ to be sin, who was a perfect spotless sacrifice, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And in this, we don't have Jesus actually becoming morally culpable for our sins. So Jesus never sinned and remains sinless unto death. Nor do we become intrinsically righteous by Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. What is taking place here and what has to be argued is it's a legal declaration. So Jesus is legally declared to be sin on the cross. And we are legally declared to be righteous through his imputed righteousness, which we'll look at um, at another time. That's the doctrine of justification. Uh, and so Christ remains sinless, yet bearing the penalty of our sin as the substitute. And though we are still sinners, we are declared righteous in God's sight with Christ's very own righteousness. And if you've heard that word imputation before, the Bible says there's three imputations. Adam's sin is imputed to us. So we are caught up in Adam's sin. That's why all have sinned and fall short. We are, Adam was our federal head. And we, when he sinned, the whole world was plunged into sin. And then our sin was imputed onto Christ. And he was declared culpable for our sin. And then by faith in Christ, his righteousness is imputed onto us. Uh, and that's what took place on the cross. So we need a penal substitute because what we saw before, we have broken the law, we've fallen short of God, there must be a penalty paid. Uh, we need a substitute because if we pay that penalty, we'll be paying it forever in hell. Um, everyone will pay for their sins. It's just whether or not, well, well not a, everyone outside of Christ will pay for their sins. Everyone's sins will be paid for. That's what I mean to say. Either you pay for it or Christ pays for it. You pay for it in eternity or Christ pays for it once for all upon the cross. John Stott says, The concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. So the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God sub substituting himself for man. And then he says, Divine love triumphed over divine wrath by divine self-sacrifice. Divine love triumphed over divine wrath by divine self-sacrifice. That's penal substitutionary atonement. We are brought back into oneness with God because our sin has been fully paid through the substitutionary death of Jesus. Now, I'm sure all of that is, that's glory. That's what we know. But I just want to pause there and see, does anyone have any questions or any thoughts or divergent opinion and want to just come back at me with something or want me to talk about something a bit further or a question you've always had? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, so in a human court, 
it, it wouldn't be just. Because if I, I don't know, Try not to impute myself with some crime, but if I, if I you know, steal or break, break someone's something or other, and then the judge just says, well, I'll let you off. Um, I've committed a guilt. The judge has remissed my guilt and said, you're free. It's been paid for, or it's not been paid for, but your, your sins are forgiven. But the offended party doesn't actually have any restitution, and they still have their wrath and their anger, and there's no reconciliation there. But in the divine court, what happens is, is that God is both the judge and the offended party. And so as the one who is the offended party, he can determine if he's satisfied by the penalty that's paid or not. And so when he determines, I will be satisfied with the substitute, and he puts forward that substitute, Jesus Christ, and it's in divine plan, then that's why it's just for God um, to actually allow the substitute. That's why the, the, the goats and the rams and the pigeons and the doves and the turtle doves and all these beautiful animals actually never cleanse the sin because they're not actually a satisfactory substitute. It's not until God in divine love sends forth Christ and Christ's perfect life meets all the demands that God is satisfied in order to say, that was enough. Uh, that was my plan. I've expended my wrath upon him. Um, and so I think it goes back to, there's no law which says substitution. It's just God's plan that he's actually satisfied with that. And because he's the offended party, he's the one that gets to determine if he's no longer offended. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, go, yeah. I'd much rather answer questions than just keep talking. Yeah. Hmm. I think I just flick over it. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, I don't know. How would a universalist interpret the Passover? That's a good thought. I've actually never thought of that. Oh, yeah, that's a good point, Ben. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so there was a historic judgment. Maybe they died. But in the universal, eternal sense, um, Christ's death paid for those fair pharaoh sins and so he'll be in heaven on his chariot i don't know like i mean yeah and you're exactly right because of how great god is and how great christ is they would say that the the atonement was so sufficient it was sufficient for all the world and all time and no one will go to hell um, because that's love how could a loving god ever send anyone to hell um, he demonstrated his love by sending Christ. Why would he send Christ if he didn't want to save everyone? Why wouldn't he just save everyone? Um, so, yeah. I think, good answer, Ben. Glad you're here. <laughs> save me. Any other questions? You can have another one, Nikki. You... 
Ah, no, questions, questions are more fun. All right, well, let's have a look at the results of the atonement. So we've had the necessity, God's wrath, our sin, the nature of the atonement. Well, we overcome God's wrath and his justice um, through a penal substitutionary sacrifice. The results of the atonement, now this is a bit more subjective. So how does God now view us? Well, three more shins. First one, propitiation. Propitiation. Uh, so Jesus Christ, if you look at those italicized things, paid the penalty for our sins by dying in our place on the cross, fully absorbing God's holy wrath. That word propitiation um, is a, a word used a lot in the Old Testament. Um, it's used in pagan religions as well. It basically means the turning away of anger or the appeasement or satisfaction of wrath. Now, if you look down at the word below it, expiation, uh, that means the covering, cleansing, or removal of sin. And there was a big controversy about 100 years ago about was Christ actually a propitiation or just did he expiate our sins? Uh, and there was a guy called Dodd and there was others that didn't like the idea of a God that needed propitiation. Because the idea behind propitiation is that God is wrathful and angry, he hates sin, and he's got this burning hatred towards those who are sinners. And then you put a Jesus there, and then suddenly God's like, oh, I don't need to be wrathful anymore. I, I, I'm, I'm good. Uh, and that idea or that way of conceiving it just felt very pagan. Because if you think of what you know of Roman or Greek mythology or Norse mythology, you've got the gods are doing their own thing and you want favor, or you've done something wrong, so you offer a sacrifice to stop the gods being angry with you, to stop the storm or the hail or the bloodshed, and you offer a child sacrifice, and the god relents, and then you can go on your way. And so they, a lot of people thought, this is a really bad way to think of God. The problem is, is that the idea of propitiation is all throughout the Bible, um, and as much as they tried to argue that it's only expiation, that is, it's only the removal of sin rather than the quenching of God's wrath, every time the word propitiation is used, which is um, hilasmos or hilasterion, um, it, it, the context is always used in the context of wrath and anger and, and God's vehemence against sin. Uh, and so what actually is a glorious doctrine uh, they, they didn't like, and they even made whole Bible translations and got rid of the word. So if you read any of those verses, Galatians 3, Romans 3, 1 John 4, uh, and there's a, two other places in the New Testament, it won't say the word propitiation. It'll say um, some other word like uh, our sins have been removed or something like that. Um, such So if you've got the New English Bible and there's one other translation, uh, and, and which one? RSV, yeah, and that's, uh, they didn't use the word propitiation there. So what is propitiation? Well, the turning away of anger, the appeasement or satisfaction of wrath. Look at Galatians 3.13, though, to see how we can see one aspect of God's anger being propitiated. Galatians 3.13. So Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law 
by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So God hates sin. Anyone who sins is under a curse. And Christ doesn't just remove our sin. He becomes a curse. He becomes the one in which God's vengeful anger is poured upon. Uh, and the curse then is removed from your eye. If you notice in 1 Peter, when we've been studying it, like we said today, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And that's another reference to the curse language of, um, it's in Exodus and Leviticus, I believe. If you look at Romans 3, um, you'll see the word, actual propitiation word used there. So you know Romans 1. If you know, you've got to know the context, actually, which helps us build this doctrine. Romans 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Uh, so God's not just like, oh, you've broken the rules. It's wrath. It's, it's hatred against sin. Uh, and then in chapter 2, if I can find it. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So sinners are storing up wrath like a, like a dam. It's just every sin and all their whole life, it's building up, it's building up, it's building up, it's building up, it's building up. And unless there is a penal substitute, unless there's a propitiation, that flood of wrath will come against you or I, against sinners. And this is the great problem. How do we get rid of this wrath? And then he says in chapter 3, verse 23, All have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift. How? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, which we'll look at next week, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. So the way that God abates his wrath is what we saw. He's the divine self-substitute. He sends Christ and Christ chooses to go. And then he puts Christ on the cross and sheds his blood. And the blood, the lifeblood is poured out. And the wrath of God is poured upon Jesus. And that word, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's really a cry of how long? Because although Christ didn't suffer eternally for his sin, there's no law which says we actually have to suffer eternally to make satisfaction for sin. Christ was on the cross, and you could have imagined when that, when, what, three hours of darkness and pain, every minute of that, that's propitiation. That's God's wrath just coming against him. And right at the end, at 3 p.m., he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he breathes his last. Uh, and so that's what's taking place there, is he's bearing the wrath of God. He's not just a, it's not just like a binary, okay, I need a substitute, here's a substitute, the deal is done. There's actually God's vehement hatred of sin is poured upon Jesus so that the damn levy has broken and it will never be poured out. No wrath will be ever built up against you or I. 1 John 4.10 is another 
place where that word propitiation is used. And you can see why no one in culture likes this idea because no one wants an angry, wrathful God because no one wants to be the subject of God's anger and wrath. But again, this is a great verse which shows us how love and the cross come together. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and because He loved us, sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Sometimes people argue propitiation has this idea of an angry God. You've got to send a Jesus in so then he can love us again. And he's back to happy God. But actually, this verse teaches us because he loved us, he sent Jesus to be the propitiation so that he could love us. So love brings the cross and brings the propitiation. It doesn't, it's not like this pagan ritual. Does that make sense? So, but then there is also, expiation is a biblical idea. Um, Behold the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. So God's wrath is appeased and we want expiation. Our sins are covered over or removed. They're taken away. If you go to Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, you'll see um, an ex- example of the removal of our sin. Colossians 2.14 says, or let's read 13. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? Verse 14, by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So the wrath is removed And the sin is actually removed as well and covered over. The Lamb of God does both. Um, And so both are really good news. Um, The result of the atonement is that God is no longer angry at you and God has set aside your sin and actually will never hold it against you ever again. Um, the, 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 The paper has been torn up. And that leads us to the final shun, purification or positional sanctification, which Joel actually spoke about in his sermon a couple of weeks ago. Um, Often we talk about progressive sanctification, that we bit by bit are becoming holy. But one of the other effects of the cross is that there is a sense in which right now we are considered holy. Um, To complete the sacrificial image of the Old Testament, which was always about dealing with our sin and purifying God's people so that they could be in his presence, uh, Jesus actually purifies us. So if you go back to 1 John 1, You'll see this idea of purification. Oh, actually, 1 Corinthians 6.11 was the one, the first one I wanted to do. But anyway, 1 John 1.7. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So wrath is appeased. Sin is taken away, it's cancelled, and it's cleansed. We're purified. 1 Corinthians 6.11, And such were some of you, and he's talking about all those sins that we saw last weekend at Mardi Gras and the sins we see in our home every week, um, every day. 1 Corinthians 6, 10, Thieves, drunkards, adulterers, sexually immoral, Swindlers, revilers, practice homosexuality, 
Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Hebrews 9, 14, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Uh, So the result of the atonement is propitiation. God's wrath is appeased. Expiation, our sin is removed. And purification, our soul is cleansed. It's good news. (laughs) It's very, very good news. And that's why the hymn writers, that's why we're so gospel-centered. And that's why we, we have to guard these doctrines. Because without this, you end up with a totally warped view of God, with humanity. You won't preach the gospel. People won't be saved. Um, the teddy bear God, no one repents to the teddy bear God. Because the teddy bear God just gives you snuggles. Um, but if there's a wrathful God, you need a penal substitutionary sacrifice in your place. And it produces hymns like Man of Sorrows, the original. Man of Sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was He. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Lifted up was He to die. It is finished, was His cry. Now in heaven, exalted high. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a Savior. When He comes, our glorious King, all his ransomed home to bring. This anew, this song will sing. Hallelujah, what a saviour. And what a saviour indeed. Well, let's pause there. Were there any other questions from that? And then if we have time, I don't even know what the time is, we can look at the other theories of the atonement. But any, any questions people want to have on that? It's seven, okay. Yes. It's one of those, like we were saying before, he had to be the offended party to, for God's justice to still remain. So how could a non-interested party actually take away the sins of the world. Uh, the offended party has to be involved and, and, and say that was satisfied. So Christ had to be divine. Um, he had to be divine in order to be totally righteous as well. Otherwise, the sacrifice would have been tainted by Adam's sin um, and, and not been a pure sacrifice. Um, there are two reasons I can think of. Anyone can think of any more? Ben? Yeah, yeah, it would have been one for one, not one. Yeah. 
Yeah, you could imagine a place in which maybe one God could satisfy his justice to have one person die um, in the place of others. Does that answer? Feel free to push back. Any other questions? I think so, yeah. Yeah, I think I think Christ will bear I I think and I could be wrong, but given that his resurrected body had scars, I think he'll be the only person in the new creation with scars. I think we'll have redeemed bodies. I could be wrong on this, so but but I think he he still bore in his resurrected body the scars of the atonement. And so in eternity, he will bear those scars. But I wonder if when we're resurrected, we'll be scarless and he, he alone will be the, the one. I could be wrong on that, but that's just, just a theory. Um, but yeah, I, I think Christ is eternally human and divine. It's an absurd theory to think, what a condescension. Human. Great question. I've thought about that one. No, but to remain human. Why couldn't he resurrect into his pre-incarnate non-bodily form? Maybe it's linked to the resurrection itself. So like 1 Corinthians 15 says, we'll be resurrected in a body like his. And so because he came man and secured our resurrection. His resurrection body is then the first fruits of our resurrection body, and he remains in body in order. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's definitely part of it, as well as maybe the goodness of the body and the, the redeeming of the, the the new creation will not be ethereal presence. It will be enfleshed presence. Um, and Christ will be now forever the the new Adam. But he's clearly still quite much the different like if you think of the revelation and revelation yeah. described as like a voice of waterfalls. Man, I wish I had a waterfall voice. Yeah. Yeah, what was shrouded in his humanity, Philippians 2, is let loose in his resurrection body. And even still somewhat, he probably hid it, but he's appearing into locked rooms and doing whatever he willed in his resurrection body is a hint at where he, what he can do in his full Humanity and divinity together. Yeah. Say that again. <laughs> Remaining as a body. Yeah, it could be. I haven't given enough thought, so I, yeah, could be. That one is genuinely one that I think about a lot. I'm like, man, what a condescension. Maybe to come to earth for 30 years, but to remain in that state 
for all eternity. I, um, yeah. Hmm. Yes. Yeah, that plays a part. It is mind-blowing. Thank you, Lord. Mm. Other questions? Ladies first. Well, there's different ways. I don't. I couldn't give a great answer on that. I don't have enough study. But I think some would say that it's the nation of Israel is the servant, um, and so that would be one way of interpreting. Another would be they're waiting for the servant to come. Still, um, any other guys who've got theological training have a better answer. Yeah, because if you read all the servant songs, there is a blend in which sometimes they do sound corporate and national, and then it sounds sometimes it sounds individual as well. And so you, yeah, yeah. But I guess it's helpful to understand in a sense. Um, yeah, they're right. It is referring to Israel because this. Is yes. Good. He's the fulfillment. All right. Yeah. Yeah, and we shouldn't ever think of it as anything less than a triune work. It's not like God was like, well, I've got to kill someone. Uh, But it's it's the the Father and the Son working together saying, we'll do, this is what we'll do. Uh, And there's no unwillingness. That's why Jesus said, my food is to do my Father's will. Um, And the Spirit strengthens Christ so that he can go through the sacrifice because God's plan was always to save his people and um, yeah so we've got to see this as deeply trinitarian not playing off one part of the godhead to the other um, yeah okay it's five past seven do we have a quick look at some of the alternate theories of the atonement there's more than this but here's a few Okay, the ransom theory. This was as early as origin um, in the like, well, maybe third century. 
it was 181 to 200 and something um, AD. Uh, so Origen had this theory that the reason Jesus had to die on the cross is that Satan sort of demanded it. And so God gives Jesus um, to Satan and to pay off the debt uh, to Satan to some degree. That is, I think, part of the, yeah, in the, in the Apostles' Creed, that idea of what, what does that mean? And what did the early church think of that? Um, yeah, so Satan exercised, the control Satan exercised over man that began in the fall, the ransom for man is owed to Satan. When the ransom was paid, man was released. Christ vanquished Satan, Christus Victor, and thus was not able to be held by him. Um, so it's, it's sort of like, a little bit like um, Narnia and Lewis and Aslan dying on the stone table, tricking Satan, and then that leads to the destruction of the White Witch. And um, I don't know if Lewis was doing the ransom theory, but it, it, it sort of is a little bit like it. Shortcomings, uh, no biblical support. That's a shortcoming. It ignores the fact that Christ's death was to satisfy God, not Satan, as we've labored to produce tonight. It overstates Satan's power. Satan can't demand things from God. He's got nothing on, like, he's nothing. He's categorically in a different realm to God. God is God. Satan is a created being. He may have some power, but it's on a leash, and he has no way of demanding anything to God. And it minimizes God's the Father's role in planning the death of the Son, um, as we've seen. So the, ran the ransom theory doesn't hold water. Uh, the moral influence theory, this was, oh, what would you say, the 11th century AD. Peter Abelard, if you've ever heard that name, French theologian. By the way, I'm stealing these notes from my lectures at PC um, from Jeff Percival, so I haven't done deep study on these theories. Abelard emphasized the primacy of God's love. Christ's death did not make a payment to the Father, but rather demonstrated to man the full extent of God's love. It was not man's guilt, but his fear and ignorance of God that needed to be remedied. So the cross is not a penal substitution. It's a display of God's love, and it catches us up in that love. Um, it's a subjective theory of the atonement because its primary effect is not on God, but on man. Uh, this theory gained popularity in the 19th century um, and was the beginnings of what's called the social gospel movement, which was really where liberalism and everything came out of. Uh, thanks, Siri. Uh, and then in that 19th century, the emphasis was that man's problem is not his violation of God's law, but rather his attitudes that keep him apart from God. Sin is not a violation, but a sickness from which man must be healed. And so the cross is like a, oh, God's loving and God's good. Therefore, I can be loving and I can be good in this world. Shortcomings, it's man-centered, not God-centered. It denies human guilt, minimizes sin, ignores God's divine justice, and ignores texts that clearly speak of Christ becoming our sin and dying for our sin. Um, sounds good to the ear, sounds beautiful and poetic, uh, but doesn't make any sense of any of the passages we looked at tonight. 
Thirdly, the example theory or Socinianism. Uh, this was developed by Faustus Socinius um, as an anti-Trinitarian atonement theory in the time of the Reformation. Socinius agreed with Abelard that God's justice does not require a payment for sin. He taught that Jesus suffered and died in order to leave us an example to follow. But Jesus was not the second person of the Trinity, according to Socinius. Uh, and undergirding this view was a Pelagian anthropology. Um, Pelagius was a 4th century theologian who taught that man, we weren't totally depraved. We weren't fully sinful. Um, what, Christ, what, what, what Christ achieved on the cross was he... What the cross achieved was it... How do you say it? It removed our original sin so that we could choose God and we're free to choose God. This is where Arminianism comes from. Um, and Arminianism is semi-Pelagian. Full Pelagian is that man is not actually sinful and we're totally able to choose God spiritually and morally. This laid the foundation even more for Unitarianism um, and liberalism. Uh, Unitarians was a big thing, especially in the US, actually. A lot of, um, uh, of the early fathers in the modern con in that constitution i think we're unitarians which i actually don't know a ton about so don't quiz me on that one i think you can see the shortcomings uh, the last one i will mention is non-violent theory again this is it's actually hard to find much on it it hasn't gained a lot of traction but it might um, in the early part of this millennia uh the early 2000s there was a movement called well, by Brian McLaren and Steve Chalk and a bunch of other guys that were trying to teach a different theory of the atonement. They said this, Steve Chalk and Alan Mann, the cross isn't a form of cosmic child abuse. So they thought, I mean, there's a view that looks at what we're talking about today is child abuse. So the cross isn't a form of cosmic child abuse. A vengeful father punishing his son for an offense he has not even committed. If the cross is a personal act of violence perpetrated by God towards humankind, but born by his son, then it makes a mockery of Jesus' own teaching to love your enemies. The idea that God was an angry deity requiring a sacrifice to propitiate his wrath was surely more like an ancient pagan God than the father of Jesus Christ. So this view is basically the idea that God doesn't need to kill his son to save his people. That's violent. That's wrong. Jesus said, love your enemies. God said, love your enemies. How could God be love if he kills his son? Um, and so people like that idea because it, it, it's nice and cuddly and cushy. Uh, but it, again, it just doesn't make any sense of any of these texts which speak so clearly of God's wrath. Jesus bearing that wrath gladly, willingly, um, and actively not just passively so there's some other theories i'm sure there's more wrong theories out there uh, th there are other theories of the atonement which are, are good but just not sufficient so christus victor that what happened on the cross was that christ was victorious over satan um, which is true um, colossians 2 teaches us that and it's a good it's good it's just not sufficient uh, the example theory is true to some degree um, we saw it today. He left us an example that we should follow in his will. So we should look at Christ's suffering on the cross, but that doesn't cover the whole thing. 
The best way to understand everything that happened on the cross is substitution. Penal substitutionary atonement. Next week, what we're going to do is look at three images of what took place on the cross. So if propitiation is the sacrifice image, or it takes you into the temple courts. Well, next week, we're going to look at redemption. That takes you to the slave market. Justification, that takes you to the law courts. And reconciliation, uh, that takes you into the family home. Uh, Three images of what happened on the cross um, for us. How about I pray, and then if we want to chat some more, everyone can stick around and hang out. Lord, we want to thank you so much for your word that, and all the great teachers that have taught us. Uh, we're grateful that in your mercy that you placed us in a, in a church, in a context where we're taught the truth and we're not misled. And I pray and ask that you would help us to be fueled in our affection. Uh, may this actually help us to love you more to enjoy you more deeply, uh, to see just how holy and righteous you are, how wicked and sinful we are, and then how you bridge that gap through sending your son who you didn't have to send. Uh, And so we thank you for the Savior. We thank you that you poured out your wrath upon him, that through his death you take away our sins, and that you purify us completely, and that we are now cleansed of all sins. We are washed and we are sanctified. Help us to go out into our week in the good of that knowledge. In Jesus' name, amen.